Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance podcast, the University of Alberta's Tolkien Society book study for the winter term of 2015. Join us this semester as we read and discuss The Silmarillion. Hope you enjoy it!
anybody bring challenges? I have a bunch at home that got submitted early. <clears throat> no? Okay. Send them in late for the journal, guys. <laughs> yeah. Dan, did you have a question? I was just going to say I'm really good at Photoshop, but I don't think I can apply for positions. Can yeah, it has to officially be student. Yeah. But I mean, like, if we don't have anyone good at Photoshop, they could be in charge of coordinating with you and being <laughs> right. like, hey, Dan, we need a poster for this. Exactly. Can we title. change the title of marketing to Dan Wrangler? <laughs> <laughs> what the Romans did, we could just uh, do unconstitu unconstitutional things all the time, but it's no biggie. Yeah, we're right. Yeah. Can we look at the dictator? Okay, good. So, um, we are going to try to get through the fall of Gondor. We will not. So, um, and then hopefully we can do the Arendelle and the Calvert next week, and then we're done. Uh, there may, if people are interested, we could have one more week during exams just to do the last chapter, or maybe to finish a column if we don't get through it, but we'll see how it goes. Anyway, so uh, we'll go around as we usually do, and if you have something that you liked or something you want to talk to up to, we're supposed to read through the War of Wrath, so you may as well throw that in there too, and then from there we'll, we'll, we'll get going. So does anyone want to start us off? Okay, Alex, and we'll go counterclockwise. Okay, <laughs> one of my favorite parts in, I mean, I loved all of them. One of my favorite parts, though, was uh, Fingal's death in the Fall of Doria, because I don't like Fingal, and also it was hilarious. But also, I really like Arendil and Elwing. They're, like, yeah. really cool, so, yeah. It's funny, because it's, it's a, the summer of them is supposed to be sad, and yet, for Alex, it seems more happy, because the character she doesn't like is getting killed. Well, Fingal was just an Idiot. I mean, just yeah. break a couple guards. I mean, not like a yeah. whole regiment, just a couple. Okay, let's let's keep going. I, I stopped us there, which was my mistake. New Carmines of Reddit more recently this, than December. I can't tell you what happened. Okay. <laughs> I didn't read either, but I'm going to say my, one of my favorite parts of these chapters is what happens to the Silmarils when you find out where they all go. Yeah. 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 Um, I got to say, I love when. Arendelle's ship takes off and flies around. I know Daniel is <laughs> I, I love it. And then, of course, we see this, they see the star, which is Venus. Which is a... Uh, pass. Really? Um, <laughs> uh, this is hard. I think I really like um, Anglican uh, breaking Franco, the mountains. I can't pronounce things right now. <laughs> Uh, my favorite part would probably be Arendelle and Elle's whole face. <laughs> there were a lot of things I liked here and a lot of things I didn't like, but one that sort of comes to both is what happens to Elrond and Elros. Yeah. I didn't read the chapters, and I don't remember well enough to say. Uh, I like the reunion between her and Chapters, but uh, one of my favorite bits was just like 
Michael and just all the stuff he's, he's sort of involved in. And he sort of illustrates my, my belief that envy is the most powerful of all, like the seven deadly sins, because ultimately that's what causes him to ruin everything. Also, I want to give a little shout out. I'm glad that Min is finally dead. I was happy to see him go. Um, I like, uh, well, the battle of uh, Gondolin with, well, they kill at least a couple Balrogs. In there, which is awesome, and also Meglin's uh, death. Yes, and how awesomely ironic it is, <laughs> at least with his father's prophecy. Not really a prophecy, I guess, just <laughs> death wish. I apparently went out my copy of the Silver Release, so I haven't got it back yet, so I wasn't able to read. But uh, the um, the Arendil chapter is one of my favorites. And I also like after the Silmarils have been lost, how the one son of Fayar is kind of like left in horrible regret. Yeah. I just find it such a poetic image. I like the Balrogs. Who? Sorry. The Balrogs. Oh, the Balrogs. <laughs> yes. Um, good time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I have two favorite parts. I really like uh, Glorfindel's last stand on yep. that. That is one of my favorite parts of the Silmarillion. And I really like the end, the very end paragraph. Here ends the Silmarillion. If it has passed from the high and the beautiful to darkness and ruin, that was of old the fate of Arda Marg. But if any change shall come and the Marin be amended, Manwe and Varda may know. But they have not revealed it, and it is not declared in the dooms of Mandos. Yeah, that might be one of them. Yeah, Alex? Well, I think like it's just like an interesting I mean, obviously 
it's kind of foreshadowing to like the even worse case of this happening because like at first it's like Windor likes Finduilas, but Finduilas likes Turin. Yeah. So like that's okay. But then later, of course, then you get like Brandier who likes Neonor, but Neonor likes Turin. So that's like right. the worst version of what's happening right yeah. now. Yeah, I like how Gwyndor points out that uh, Turin isn't barren. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't expect the same sort of romance. Yeah, Gwyndor evokes barren, right? So Findulas is in love with Turin and discloses that to Gwyndor. And Gwyndor makes an interesting point that Turin is not barren, <clears throat> but it's not because Turin doesn't have a doom on him, because barren also has a it's the type of doom that Gwyndor sort of picks up on, which I find sort of interesting. I mean, it raises the question I had last week, which is, when you look at all of the marriages between men and elves, and now we have, now we know there's three, um, what would have happened if there had been four, right? If Turin had married Finduas. And like I said, Glaurong definitely goes out of his way to make sure that it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Not this <clears throat> sounds like all of this would have been averted if that hadn't happened. It's saying obvious though. Yeah, well, it's interesting that um, so it's in um, Tour in the Fall of Gondolin where the paths of Tour and cross, right? When does that, so we're going to jump ahead, which is fine, but, but what, is this, what is the significance of that moment for both of those characters? What is Turin, where is Turin on his way to when, when Tour sees him? Yeah, he's on his way to Hithlum to rescue his family, right? Under the sort of, the enchantment of Glaur. Right? who has sort of sent him there, right? So, and that moment, when I think when Turin chooses to go to Hithlum to rescue his family, rather than to go after Findulus, seems to be the moment in the story where Turin's doom is set. That's, that's the moment of no return. Once Turin makes that decision, then, then he's finished. There's no going back. It's all, right? Um, Tour is also in a sort of a key moment in that in that point in the story of Tour, right? He's also sort of under the influence, right? But who influences Tour? Ulmo, right? So they're both sort of under this influence, right? They're both they both have sort of this destiny, this doom on them. Um, but Tour, of course, and, and you know we're gonna get to this, but Tour, of course, is, is a very different character than Turin, right? And his his doom is right to go to to Gondolin. So it's kind of a it's not crisscrossing the whole ninety degrees. But but anyway, right in in those moments where they where they kind of see each other, I think we're meant to make a kind of parallel, a kind of comparison between the two of them. Right? They're both under under a kind of a doom. Um, Turin's doom is leading him to to destruction. Tour's doom is leading. So it's kind of interesting that Tolkien, uh, I think in the Lost Tales, that scene is longer, actually. The Lost Tales, that, well, okay, we'll get to that. Okay, so we're still in Nargothrond. Turin does what 
Jordan does best, he takes over, right? Um, he doesn't seem to mean to, but we talked about how Turin can't not sort of be in charge, right? He's just, he's gifted. And, uh, and that's part of the tragedy, is the fact that he, he has these gifts that he takes over, he becomes the leader, and then of course everything goes, goes awry. Um, okay, he's also revealed, and this is where we get um, Gwyndor's famous line, the doom is in yourself, not in your name. How does that play into sort of this tension between sort of fate and free will that we've been talking about? Turin always seems to think that, you know, every time a new situation comes up, he picks a new name. <clears throat> Six or something at the end. But, um, and that always seems to be a, you know, a knee-jerk defense mechanism. He doesn't want people to know all I am, bloodstained son of ill fate. Which is still telling everybody kind of something about him, but not specifically enough like you were a touring. Yeah. Touring and I. Yeah. He's not wanting to invoke that, but every time he changes a name, it's usually because something has gone bad, and he needs to escape the situation and go somewhere else, so it's not... Yeah. He's not escaping anything, he's just yeah. people ignorant as to why he yeah. Yeah. First time he uses son of. Mm -hmm. Son of ill fate, right? Um, yeah, okay. Um, there's something else that happens here that, that I think is important, especially when we get to tour again, is. Um, these messengers come, right, to Oradreth from Kirdak, the shipwreck, right? And what do they, what message do they bring? And from whom? From Umo. They bring a message from Umo. Umo, again, is the only Vala who is actually engaged in, in Valerian and Northrend. Um, when we get to tour, when we get to Gondwa, I mean, he's all over the place, right? Um, what's the what's the message? What's the message? Yeah. Um, the spring of the north has been defiled by evil. Lock your doors. Yes. Hide your wife. Hide your Notice, the, notice how, right, notice that it says, say therefore to the Lord of Nargothrond, right? Which, I mean, there's a nice sort of ambiguity there, right? Who, who are they talking about? Are they talking about Orodreth or are they talking about Turin, right? And of course, um, Turin doesn't listen. Because um, why would Turin listen? Right. So yeah, so of course, you know, they don't. In fact, in fact, he builds a bridge, right? Has he already built the bridge or yeah. it's in Lowell's warning to cast the stones if you're riding into the river. Yeah, right. Oh yeah, right. So the bridge is already there. Okay, so so basically Turin is again, you know, he's setting himself up and setting up Nagarthron for for a big fall. Uh, okay, so that's good. So let's move on, because there's not you, you, um, let's talk about Glaurung. Someone talk about Glaurung. 
Flower Arm is awesome. Yes. Why? She's a dragon. <laughs> First dragon. Well said. Okay. And he controls people with his mind. Yeah, what's that about? Turin fails all the saving throws. Yes! Turin fails all the saving throws. That's right. Though he's very good at Simon Says, I must say. <laughs> stay there and stay there until everyone else has passed. Okay, got it? Got it. Got it. Uh, Kara. Um, you also get a lot of, like we said to the kids about how Tolkien likes to have his battles, like important ones with words and not swords, or uh, fighting. Yeah. Lowering is probably totally capable of just like eating them or something, <laughs> but instead yeah. he uses this like intelligence and cunning to thwart them, I guess. Yeah, okay, Dan. Lowering has a mastery of the voice, much like Sauron. Mm-hmm. Mm. Hey, Kara. Where, where does this evil come from? Like there's this interesting line. Um, I mean, what, what, I mean, we learn we learn quite a bit about dragons in general in this chapter, right? Um, or at least Tolkien's understanding of them, right? Then suddenly he spoke. This is on page two thirteen in mind. Then suddenly he spoke um, by the evil spirit that was in him. He's not a liar. So what? Is, yeah, what is a dragon? What, what, what are these things? Well, that sounds like it could be like that. That Morgoth just grew like beasts. And then Meyer could possess them because we know that Meyer could do that. Well, and then also we know that like werewolves are sort of possessed by spirits as well. Or it could be poetical for his own personal spirit being evil. Yeah. True. Mm-hmm. Could be. Yeah. I think it's mentioned somewhere that he's not that Glowering wasn't a Meyer, but that'd be super cool if he was. Or just a large portion of Morgoth's power is in him, and that's evil in yeah. spirit. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, I don't think Glorong or any dragons are my heart just because in the Children of Hurin there's one line about when Yenor looks into his eyes and she either sees the eyes of Morgoth or the eyes of his master. So I think that the dragon is its own entity, but its main power comes as being an instrument of Morgoth and not actually a separate my heart like a Goliath or something. I was just going to bring out one Goliath. Um... Yet Glaurung, I mean, he's a he is a servant of Morgoth, but there are hints that he's not fully dominated by Morgoth, right? He, he sort of creates his own little kingdom down there, right? He, he gathers orcs, right? So it's not like he is he is under the completely under the sway of Morgoth. They seem to be maybe at, at certainly in, in, in the long term in the same purposes, but but Glaurung seems to be his own. Has it have kind of his own agency? Doesn't he uh, yeah. Morgoth? He comes out too early. Yeah. Shows mm-hmm. himself. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. At one point, yeah. Yeah. He's not just like a puppet. Mm-hmm. Right. Tamara. Could it be the result of the part of music in the very beginning, and so therefore he is an entity just as important as any like a not a human or elf, but he has been created because of that music, and so therefore he hasn't been perverted, mm. but was originally. Then Manoe awoke, and he went down to Yavanna upon a Zelahar, and he sat beside her beneath the two trees. And Manoe said, O Kementari, Eru hath spoken, saying, 
Do then any of the valor suppose that I do not hear all the song, even the least sound of the least voice? Behold, when the children awake, then the thought of Ivana will awake also, and it will summon spirits from afar, and they will go among the Calabar and the Olvar, and some will dwell therein and be held in reverence, and their just anger shall be feared. Spirits from afar will come and enter into some animals and some plants. So we should talk about ants here. You know, what are these spirits from afar? Could they be spirits that were twisted? Going back to the dragons, could they be some of these spirits of animals that were twisted? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the answer. Um, you know, but it seems that um, it, it could be, Glaurum could be a kind of Maya, I suppose. One that was twisted just as Sauron was twisted. Um, the Astari also seem to be um, Maiar, like spirits that have sort of entered into, into human, into physical form in some sense. Um, and they can be twisted too. Yeah. Just like Sauron. Mm -hmm. um, his eyes seem to have a similar power of, that Sauron's eye has. Remember the way Sauron's eye kind of tracks you in The Lord of the Rings, not like the big beacon up in the tower. <laughs> like like on, on Amon-Hen, for example, right? When Frodo feels the eye sort of searching for him, right? That's not a physical eye searching for him. It's, quite, it's sort of a, it seems to be a kind of force or, or influence of Sauron that is sort of, yeah, Nick? But wasn't that because of the Palantiri he had? Not on Amon-Hen. When he put on the ring on Amon-Hen. Yeah, and, and there are other times when, like in, in Mordor too, when, when Frodo feels the eye, sort of, right? And the eye is kind of a metaphor for something, right? Um, it's interesting that um, without fear, Turin looked into them as he raised up the sword, and straight away he fell under the binding spell of the lidless eyes, which is the way the eye of Sauron is described, lidless and wreathed in fire, right? So it seems to be a, some kind of malevolent power influence. Yeah. I think it has to take it takes a great deal of effort at least to project because as soon as Garon's attention wavers a bit, Turin starts stabbing through his eyes. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, okay, uh, just for your interest, only only three major dragons get any significant time in Tolkien's writing. <coughs> who can who can name the three? Glauron, Caledon. It's not the one in Farmer. Yeah. Oh, Chrysophilix dies in Farmer Jaws of Hand. He gets a lot of he gets a lot of time. Okay, Glauron totally overwhelms Neonor's mind, right? And Glauron also seems to have this ability to twist vision, the way Morgoth is able to twist vision. Right, so there's a, they have kind of they seem to have similar sort of uh, powers. Right, um, um, Glauron doesn't just deceive them, but he kind of twists the way they they see things. Um, so, so you have this moment again. I talked about this. Right, Nargothrond has fallen, but and this is this is is this Gwyndor right saying to Turin, "There's still hope if he goes after Findulas." Right, 
Well, he says it much more dramatically. He actually says, and this last I say to thee, she alone stands between thee and thy doom. Yes. So it's not even just like, there's hope if you go after her. It's like, you go after her or you're screwed. Right, yeah. Yeah. And, and does he say that with the, with the eyes of death again? Is there something about that? Or? Yeah, this is his dying speech. Yeah. So, right. So you have... So here again, it, it's very suggestive, right? That Turin and Fingulus, should they get together, that's going to be bad for the bad guys, right? Uh, in fact, you have, you have later when, when Turin falls for, under the spell and goes to Ithlum instead, um, right? It says, but Turin passed away on the northward road and Glaurin laughed once more for he had accomplished the errand of his master, right? In other words, Morgoth had said to Glauron, even though, you know, you, I might not fully control you, you got one job, right? You got to make sure that Turin and Fidulus don't get together, right? So, I mean, it's just interesting that, of, you know, what might have happened had that, you know, had that occurred. Um, uh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I got a, I got a whole bunch of questions. I mean, there's one question about, you know, is, is in Glauron's mind, can more evil happen keeping Turin alive than killing him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. <clears throat> yeah, how much, how much foresight does Glauron have in that? Morgoth seems to know, so Glauron would know. Yeah. Yeah, Turin? It almost seems like a matter of, like, principle, too, because it's like, Turin is being kept alive by Morgoth so that he'll suffer more and so it's kind of like well in order to make Corrin suffer more we have everybody else alive to suffer more so it's kind of like a yeah. just the policy they're operating on I guess yeah and there seems to be something <laughs> similar with um, like Fanor too right like it seems like 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 Morgoth's twisting of Fanor actually leads to more damage than if Morgoth had actually done it right mm-hmm. so Morgoth has this way of of sort of twisting people and letting them loose into the world. And that seems to be cause more destruction and damage than almost end up Morgoth himself comes along and does, right? So I mean that's that's so he that's kinda of interesting policy that he has. Um, Alex and then Tamara. Um, well I also think Turin's already proved that keeping him alive was a good thing for Morgoth because he gave up Nargathron, right? Like it's it's Turin's fault that they found out where Nargathron is. So yeah. he's probably like, well, like Clearly, Glauron could have like killed Turin, right. so might as well keep him around and see like who else he betrays, you know, or yeah. what what other bad decisions he makes and how right. he turned that to us. And yeah. like I don't know, maybe Neonor could have been like super cool because she's also a child of Thorin, but mm-hmm. it doesn't happen. Right. Yes, Mira. Morgoth knows that Turin is kind of a loose cannon right now, and so if he wants to destroy everyone, don't. Yeah. Pen them up. Right. Now, on the other hand. Glauron's decision to let Turin live leads to his own death, right? So, you know, it is sort of like, oops, you know, maybe I should have killed him when I had the chance as he feels that blade going to his guts, yeah. Well, this is the whole uh, free will thing come back again because mm-hmm. Turin makes the decision saying, no, I'm going to stop, live a peaceful life as a woodsman. And he tries to give up rising to the top and being the best, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's only when Like with uh, Nanor and the Woodsman of Bethel seems to be an attempt 
had that piece that he could have had with Dibulis. Yep. Yeah, there, there's a good example, right? I mean, it's funny, like, as terrible as, as terrible and tragic as the relationship is between Turin and Neonor, they are somehow good for each other, right? I mean, that, like, that again just shows just how tragic it is, right? They, you know, she's able to kind of keep him sort of settled, um, you know, so. Because he promises her that he won't go to war unless right. their homes intact. Yeah, right. Um, okay, so uh, oh, boy, there's so much in here. What are we gonna do? Uh, okay, so Fingerless is, is killed, of course, which is also very, very tragic. Um, uh, Tur uh, Turin heads up to Hithlum again, where he has enough more, more bad stuff happens. Um, Morwen and Neonor leave Doriath. Right? What do you make of Morwen? Or, I mean, it's interesting with Morwen because, of course, um, at the end, um, Huren, as she dies, says that she has not been conquered, right? What, what, is, what do you make of that when you look at Morwen, Morwen's story in this? I mean, Mor I mean when he find, once Morwen disappears in the fog of Glaurung, we never hear from her again, right? No, until, well, until, until Huren finds her at the grave. She just she just disappears. We assume that that whole time she's looking for them, I guess. But but she's not, you know. But it's not until Huron finds her again at the graveside that that we meet her. So where is she in that whole time? And how, you know how is it that she has so how she how is it that she's conquered? Yeah. Okay, this is not to answer that question, but I think it's interesting because Morwen, like all all the stuff she does, is because she's worried about her children and she wants to help her children, which is really great, especially contrasting her to Rion, who is does the complete opposite and decides to just go die instead of yeah. helping her children. Right. So Morwen definitely is like definitely the polar opposite there, where she's very focused on being like a good mother. Yeah. I mean, not that she necessarily accomplishes it, but she's right. definitely trying. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Jesse. I just know that she doesn't give up. Um, even when everything seems gone, like her son is missing, her daughter yeah. ran off Sort of out of almost out of your mind, kind of. Yeah, yeah, Matthew. I just think one of the greatest importances of Morwen not being conquered is that when Morgoth is talking to Huron after the Battle of a Number Tears, and he says, "Your kin will die, will die both cursing life and death," and so Turin and Neonor and Huron uh, are conquered in that sense. If you read it like like looking for that, but Morwen, she kind of passes away in the stone, but I don't think she's cursing death when the sun sets. So for me, that's important because it's just saying that 
when Morgoth says a curse or a doom, even if you Turin tried to go against the doom, but you can say he failed, whereas Morwen actually succeeded. I mean, I mean, Morwen seems to be the only one who, um, in a sense, doesn't cause any real destruction. Um, but she takes her daughter on that futile quest and gets them all to run into a dragon. That's a pretty big mistake. Yeah, but but Neonor, Neonor chooses to go with her, right? Like like Morwen tells her to stay, right? And Neonor comes after her, right? Doesn't she disguise herself even? In yeah, that's right? right. So they don't like realize that she's there. Is that the or is it more when you disguise yourself? Yeah, right. Yeah, and then of course, yeah. Well, and we know <laughs> women in Tolkien, you know, if they're determined to do something, they're going to do it, right? So it's not like Mormon could just say, "Okay, go back," right? Like Sam and others. So, so yeah, I guess. I, but yeah, in a sense, they, yeah, you could argue that she shouldn't have left it in the first place. I guess. Well, but like in that on that same page, Neonor didn't also cause any destruction. I mean, like. Right. Really torn. If you're, if you're talking about like physical destruction, it was all torn. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. But you know, yeah. 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 My other point was like, it's just interesting to compare because like when you see the deaths of Neonor and Turin, like those were clearly suicide, right? Like they threw themselves off the cliffs, right? They threw themselves onto the sword. But Morwen, like in the same way that we see so many other characters, just kind of that's her time to die. So I think it's yeah. kind of interesting to compare because like. I don't know, when, when other people say, like, oh, and now I'm done living, like, when Muriel says that, when Rion says that, it seems, like, I read that as more as kind of, like, another form of suicide, but, like, Morwen is kind of, I don't know what to think about her death, you know, and whether we should be comparing it and contrasting it with, with Turin and Nienor, who definitely commit suicide. Right. Yeah, she's also the only one in the family who sort of dies, you know, peacefully, we could sort of say, because also, as we will see, like, Horan, you know, it says that he probably, you know, threw himself from the cliff as well, so she's the only one who sort of, you know, doesn't like you know die in despair or whatever. She just you know kind of just dies while like holding her husband's hand. So it's well, yeah, her quest is complete. She found her children. She reunited with her husband, and that's it. Yeah, because yeah, that's totally what she wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting um, in the chapter that later with when Morwen dies that even at the end when the world has changed, there is that island where she is right. buried, and that gravestone is still there, and that out of all of Valerian still stands. Yeah, this is now the third of four graves that we get, and this is the only one that supposedly, according to the singer, never whose name is never mentioned again, right, um, is 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 inviolable, right? It actually doesn't. It actually survives the drowning, right? So you're like, okay. And there are some maps that told, some versions of the maps that show Tolmorwen, mm-hmm. so but not the one, not the. Yeah, I think there's a sense where more with more when sort of dies more honorably than, than the rest, I guess, if anything. So. Um, yeah, okay. Okay, so uh, what, I'll, I'll, we may as well do the death of Turin and the death of Neonor. Let's at least do that. And the death of Lauer. Yay! Death for everyone. Uh, because, yeah, we're, we're, there's just too much. <laughs> hopefully we can, hopefully we can do this uh, in the fall. So um, okay, so so um, the death of Glauron, like Turin does this thing where he sneaks through the ravine, his buddy gets killed by the rock, which again is like, you know. Um, he stabs Glauron uh, up through the belly. Which is very Norse mythology. Yeah. It's also very um, Sam Hamgy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? In fact, Turin is evoked when Sam stabs Shelob. 
right? It's the other time Turin is evoked. It actually says there that not even Turin would have been able to do it, right? But Sam does it. Turin would have been too tall. Yeah. Exactly. I was just going to say they're over exaggerating, but. I can kill a dragon, do I? Can I kill a giant spider? Nope. It's actually interesting. I brought the two towers because I don't know if you remember this, um, but Sam, in that moment, also um, considers suicide. Um, but he could not go, not yet. He knelt and held Frodo's hand and could not release it. And time went by and still he knelt, holding his master's hand and in his heart keeping a debate. Now he tried to find strength to tear himself away and go on a lonely journey for vengeance. If once he could go, his anger would bear him down all the roads of the world, pursuing until he had him at last, Gollum. Then Gollum would die in a corner. But that was not what he had set out to do. It would not be worthwhile to leave his master for that. It would not bring him back. Nothing would. They had better both be dead together. And that, too, would be a lonely journey. He looked on the bright point of the sword. This is true. He thought of the places behind where there was a black brink and an empty fall into nothingness. That's me. So both of them are true. There was no escape that way. I mean, this is totally uh, there was no escape that way. That was to do nothing, not even to grieve. That was not what he did. So then he goes on. But it's interesting that Turin is first evoked with Shelob, and then the next thing you have Sam considering suicide and looking at both the Turin and the Neon option. So there's really that parallel. Sam didn't take either one. Sam doesn't take either one. true. His sword yeah. also didn't talk to him and tell him how to say Right. Yeah. Okay, so okay, so we at least have to do um, the question. What's our time? Twelve forty. Okay, we're, we're maybe okay. Um, obviously, the big question is why is the story in here, and why is it the longest one? Why do elves remember this story? It's not about elves, right? It's about men because they get to laugh at the men doing stupid stuff. Look at those I crazy don't men. think that's it. But thank you, Ben, for that. Um, uh, yeah, Jesse. Uh, Where is the potential? Okay, so yeah, maybe, like what, what could have been. Yeah, Corinne? I think just because basically everything that Turin does forever shapes the events of the elves afterwards. Like, because Nargothron fell, the, the repercussions that because, um, you know, because he left Doriath, there were repercussions for Thingol and for Melian, um, because there isn't that force. Uh, uniting of the kindreds because he kills Glaurong. And yeah. I mean, that's like one of the positive things that he does, right? And because of the fates of men that were joined with the elder, yeah. I think just about everything that he does had a wider repercussion for why Valerian ended up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Glaurong thing is particularly important, right? Because what happens if Glaurong was still alive when Gondolin fell and Eredil was escaping down to Valar? Right? Mm -hmm. You'd have to, I mean, Glaurong. So, so, so the question of why did Gandalf send them off to kill the dragon? Right, exactly. Yeah, Alex? I think it has something to do with fate, too. Like, the way that Torn was fated to be a hero, right? Mm -hmm. And they're telling the story of the fated hero, even though the story didn't go well, you know? Like, he still is, he still has a doom, he's still an important player. Yeah. And you tell the story of the important player, regardless of whether he, if he 
was a good, yeah. had a good ending or not. Okay. Yeah, Corinne? Just to add to that part of it is also the contrast between him and Tuor. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Tuor basically his line giving birth to the saviors of uh, Valerian and Middle Earth. And, the, you know, and Tuor being his cousin, like the contrast of that particular house and sort of how they changed the fate of Arda in their own separate ways. I mean, you definitely also have, so you now we, now we have three of the main um, human heroes of Valerian. We haven't got to the greatest one yet. Um, but you know, you have Baron, you have Urin, you have Turin, all of them sort of caught up in, in this battle with Morgoth, and all of them sort of responding in different ways, right? And, and, and maybe that matters to the elves, right? They're, they're like, yeah, this, these are um, ways that, that people can respond, right, to Morgoth and, and, to, and to evil in the world. Yeah, Ben? Uh, I think this is kind of similar to what Alex was saying, but it could also be, like, that because of Turin's, like, he had this incredible fate in Doom, and he tried to run away from it, mm-hmm. and it still got back to him in the end. It's kind of like with the elves, like, your fate is tied to the world. Mm. You may try to escape it, but it, you're gonna, it's going to come back to you. Yeah. How would a story like this um, fit into the Ainu Same way all stories do, they just do. <laughs> if it goes all terribly wrong, then it somehow all comes together beautifully again. Okay, yeah. Ben? This is probably like one of the discords within the island delay, like yeah. where stuff just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, yeah, Alex. Yeah, see, I would argue um, it fits into the island delay because Turin was supposed, well, this wasn't how it was supposed to happen. Like, Turin was supposed to have this amazing heroic part, and it's a testament to the fact that he still has free will, yeah. and that he, because of his free will, and maybe because of Morgoth's free will, too, if we were going to say that his doom was acting on him. Um, his fate was changed, but as we can see, the fate of Valerian was still the same in the end. Just Turin didn't get to live to see it and didn't get very life. Yeah, um, there is a sense I think where, because of course for the Idolindale, you have this sense of Bynik, right? You have this sense of okay, um, you know, Iluvatar will make everything that goes bad for good, right? And and we can kind of read that simplistically until it becomes kind of trite. Right? It's like, oh yeah, but you know, when th- bad things happen, oh, but don't worry, don't, you know, it'll all work out for good, right? But what, what Turin allows us, it doesn't let us forget that even, doesn't let us forget just how sorrowful it, the good comes out. You know what I mean? Like, like, it doesn't let us forget that, yeah, if good comes out of it, and we don't know, like, there's no, no not a whole lot of good that comes out of, out of this story that we can see, right? I mean, okay, Glauron is killed, so maybe that's a good but, but in terms of overall, you know, there is, there is a, a legend that Tolkien wrote that, that Turin comes back at the last battle and actually fights against Morgoth with his sword, right? And so, so Turin does sort of come back, right? But, but there's a sense where it's like, um, just because good comes, it doesn't erase the sadness, right? Um, consider Frodo, right? Frodo, he's still wounded, right? Like, like the... the the happy ending does not erase the pain and the sorrow out of which the happy ending comes, right? Um, so I think that's also something that, that we keep in mind with this. Um, 
In fact, no one in this story actually has a happy ending. Right? Can you next chapter your challenges really quick? Yeah. Okay. I forgot to announce that next Monday is Easter Monday. So we're going to meet here Wednesday, same time, place. Right, Alex? Yep, still here. Okay. Um, next month is April. So we have new challenges, which will be submitted at the move to you, Brigham, or just give it to me. Uh, so the writing one is to write letters between Elrond and his brother Elros during these events. Uh, create a poem about the fall of Numenor. Um, artistic representation of any or all of the rings of power. And then under other, it says Hobbit skies of Hobbits. I don't know why. Oh, because, again? because Hobbits. Under other challenges, it just says Hobbit skies of Hobbits. Oh, because it's probably we're, we're doing, uh, we're supposed to have the rings of power. Yeah. For the Hobbits dropping in for the only time. Well, they weren't around in this territory. You can't, you can't blame them for not being there. No, I mean, we don't have to blame them. They're in the famous yeah, they were, they of time. Yeah. How do you know, Rick? It's not Tolkien, Tolkien's fault. Yeah, maybe the elves just, just were so racist they didn't even think about them. <laughs> yeah, the next week we're reading Calibur <laughs> and of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, yeah. but we'll also be reading whatever we don't get done this week. Right. So, mostly. Okay. Uh, okay, I'm just going to read some comments that I got from Corey Olson, and then I'll let you um, uh, respond to them, if you wish. Uh, so we talked about Frodo, still maimed, even wounded, that everything will work out for good doesn't mean that people, that everyone will have a happy ending, because no one in this story has a happy ending. Uh, Tolkien isn't saying that all things come right. You have to have sort of a, lar a larger framework, right? Providence is, is a narrative. Um, this story is completely unapologetically tragic. Yet the elves love the story. Right? It's the longest. Um, he, he, he mentions the bard in, the, in Cormelon, right, in Lord of the Rings, how tears can become the wine of blessedness. So this is sort of maybe a test case or something like that. Um, he also talks about how this allow, allows elves to look at tragedy from a distance. We've seen how the elves kind of suffer their own tragedy, but they don't like to talk about it. They don't want to talk about the kinslaying. It's too close, like Legolas says with Gandalf's death. But Turin is one that they can talk about, right? Because it's a slight, it's kind of one step removed from them. And so they can kind of look at it and go, okay, so this is a, this is tragedy and this is what it looks like. Um, yeah, okay. Anything, anything else? Okay, Matthew and then Alex. Yeah, I, I just read Neonor's death as, like you were saying before, how the, overall the tapestry might turn out overall to be good. Specific people like can have such sorrowful times that she was just born and her whole life was negative, whether she had a great destiny or not. Like to her, and it was just so unnatural that in specific cases things can be so unnatural because of the marring of the music. Okay, Alex. Yeah. Um. Just like comparing the tragedy of the elves to like this tragedy. Um. Like, I just think it's like, it's like such a huge dichotomy because Turin's tragedy, like, yeah, it was a big tragedy, like Narkathron, like all of Narkathron suffered and like his whole family suffered and stuff, but it ended when he died, right? Whereas the elves' tragedy is so much bigger. The elves' tragedy affect all of Beleriand, all of the Noldor, and I mean, it was really just Feanor that his, his fault, but yeah. it's like, the fact that they just like look on this tragedy or just like, oh, like what a good example of the tragedy. Look at these men, look at how tragic their lives are. And I'm like, dude, your tragedy is so much huger, like it affects so much more, like the whole realm, and lasts over like hundreds of years, whereas Turin's at least dies with him, basically. Right. Like he doesn't, 
after he dies, he can't cause any more mischief. Like, right. he's done. Yeah. But it could be kind of like, for them, like a case study. Yeah. Sort yeah. of thing, right? Um, okay. So, uh, the Ruin of Doriath, we get back to an elvish sort of uh, matters. Um, we've had the three main strongholds. One of them is just gone now, so now we're going to use the next one. Uh, anything left on um, on Hurin and uh, and Morwen? Yeah. Uh, the one thing I noticed about this is that I thought it was really weird that they were given speech when it's so little. Because I think it's like the only time in the Silmarillion where there's like speech on like one line, and they have just like this really really short conversation. And whereas generally in the Silmarillion, Tolkien would just paraphrase and just be like, and then they spoke of this, and then she died. So I thought it was very interesting that he chose to put their actual dialogue there for those four lines or whatever. Okay. I can't find it, but... For the uh, Huron and Morwen? Yeah, for Huron yeah. and Morwen. They, when you, they come and talk to each other, and their whole dialogue right. is just, you come at last, she said, I've waited too long. It yeah. was a dark road, I have come as I could, he answered. But you are too late, said Morwen, they are lost. I know it, he said, but you are not. And yeah. then she says, almost, I am spent. And like, I just thought it was weird that he included that dialogue. Yeah. Well, so we read the we read the Wanderings of Hurin, right, for the alternative book study, uh, and this comes up in that again, I think. And I don't, but it's not any longer, I don't think. Um, the only difference is that then in the Wanderings of Hurin, you have more about what Hurin does after this, right? Whereas here, you have nothing. Uh, yeah, Ben and then Daniel. Well, just to go back a little bit, I found it interesting, like when Hurin was released and went to try and find Gondolin, it just said that like the gate was buried, yeah, and then like nothing else is said about that too much. But then, like, when you go into the next chapter of Tour, you find out, oh, they did that themselves. Right. Yes. And so it's just kind of, just to, like, skip a bit ahead now, like, with Tour, like, Turgon kind of met, like, screwed Gondolin by blocking the gates. Because if yeah. he hadn't, then, then uh, Hurin wouldn't have, like, screwed him towards Gondolin. Yeah. And Morbeth wouldn't really know where it is. Right. Although... You're right, but it seems to me. And okay, so I mean, we're going to get to Turgon eventually. Um, but let's come back to that, except to say that right, you have this very poignant moment of Tur of Hurin calling out to Turgon, right? And Turgon's heart is shut, right? Um, it's not like it's not like Turgon doesn't believe that it's Hurin, Hurin, Hurin per se, right? But but there seems to be there seems to be Turgon is moving into a policy shift, right? That is going to be when we get to the fall of Gondolin, it's going to be quite set. The security of the Empire is before and not, not just And not just Turin, not just Turgon, but as we see when we get that, that the entire um, um, Gondolin turn, right? Are, are closed, right? But here you have this moment where Turin does change his mind, but of course it's too late, right? Uh, yeah. Well, there was a line earlier where uh, it was setting that Morgoth often turned his captives and then set them loose. So right. like, even if people had the good fortune of escaping they weren't trusted because of that. Right, but but who tells Turgon? Thorindor, right? Like Thor, it seems to me that Thorindor is one you can that can be trusted, <laughs> right? Um, it's interesting also that that so often in the Lord of the Rings, in Tolkien, the eagles are kind of the eucatastrophe, right? The eagles are coming. When Hurin needs a eucatastrophe, there isn't one. There are no eagles coming. Yeah, I think this is also, like, a good, another, like, Morgoth's policy of keeping his foes alive instead of killing them also turns out super well for him in this case. Yeah, yeah. 
um, yeah, you have that really, um, you have that really long sentence. Um, you know, for Huron stood in despair before the silent cliffs of Ekoriath in the western sun, da 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 da. Turgon, Turgon, remember the fen of Sarah, go Turgon. And then this, right, um, but there was no sound save the wind in the dry grasses. Even so, they hissed in Sarah at sunset, he said, and as he spoke, the sun went behind the mountains of shadow, and the darkness fell about him, and the wind ceased, and there was silence in the waste. Um, that's something I was thinking. Anyway, okay. Anyway, yeah, so, okay. So, yeah, so sad for Ruin, right? That's, that's sad. Um, okay, uh, there's parallels between Hurin and Denethor, again, in terms of twisted vision, although Hurin doesn't give up the way Denethor does. Uh, well, no. Not in the same way, anyway. Sorry, Taryn, you were going to... Because Hurin commits suicide later. In the wanderings of Hurin? No, but, like, afterwards. It's mentioned that he probably planted himself a horse It does? But it is said that Huron would not live thereafter, being bereft of all purpose and desire, and cast himself at last into the western sea, and so ended the mightiest of warriors of mortal yeah. men. Right. Huh. Okay. Uh, okay, let's talk about. Uh, we're going to skip. Oh. Before he does that, he gets to Narvagrond, and he uh, he kills Neem, and he takes the necklace. And then he, then, so let's do Doriath. Um, Alex likes the death of Thingol. I think there is a bit of tragedy there. Um, but okay, Thingol definitely, um, well, okay. What do, you, what do you make of it? Yeah, Alex. Uh, I don't even have anything profound for this. It's just like hilarious to me that like he's so, he's like so, tries to be so mighty. He's like one of the oldest elves in Middle Earth and like, he was always trying to make these big pronouncements on his throne in this beautiful cave, and he dies down in the forges with no one watching, betrayed by these dwarves, and he just dies on the floor. And I'm like, that's so like poetic, and like yes. just that he just dies in nothing. It's nothing yeah. like how he lived. Right. I mean, I find it I find it interesting that I think this is the only time where we don't see Thingol on his throne with Melian beside. And we've seen the rift between Thingol and Melian growing, right? And now he's now for the first time he's actually without Melian altogether, and it is in fact his his downfall, right? Yeah, Tamara. Always listen to Melian. She's really smart. Yeah, yeah. No one ever listens to Melian, and no one will anymore because, of course, she's going to leave. Um, I think it's. I think there is some irony that the, you know, the tallest of the children of Iluvatar is taken down by dwarves, <laughs> right? I don't know how they did that. Maybe cut them off at the ankles. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many of them. They just like swarmed, yeah. climbed yeah. each other. Yeah. It's like the fall of yeah. Julius Caesar there. What's that? It's like the fall of Julius Caesar. Uh, it's a march sort of thing going on. Yes. And two dwarves. So, yeah, tomorrow. I think it's interesting that we do get both the elves and the dwarves are equally at fault for why they don't like each other. Later on. Yes, right. Yes, right. When when you when you do find out about the the animosity between dwarves and elves, you know, obviously this is this is all kind of part of the 
Um, I think I think we can talk about the Silmaril again, right? And how the Silmaril is, plays a role in this, right? Message to them. What's the difference? We've compared. Oh yeah, Tori. Sorry, my first thought when I was reading this, and I may have been in the computer lab and yelled, "No, you don't want the Silmaril." Yeah, right. Yeah. We're, yeah. Of all things, it's like this beautiful dwarf necklace. You know what would make this better? A Silmaril. And you're just like, there, there's no help left for you. <laughs> <laughs> Everything bad happens when you say, I want a Silmaril. Yeah, but right. he has the Silmaril. Yeah, but when you decide, I want a Silmaril, and I want it to be pretty, and I want to wear it all the time. Yeah. Like, just wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's so funny that they all get this possessive thing about the Silmaril. Like, the dwarves are now like, no, 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 because of this, this, and this, the Silmaril should be ours. Right. And now Tingle's like, no, because of this, this, and this, the Silmaril is clearly belongs to me. And I'm like, dude, like, none of you guys actually have the claim on the Silmaril. Like, I mean, like, maybe Baron does because he got it from Morgoth, but really, like, they're not, they're none of yours. They don't belong to any of you. They belong to Feanor, and he's been dead forever. So, like, right. why do you all think that you own it? It's not yours, you know? Yeah, and, and what's interesting is, because of course, we're, I mean, it's not, of course we're going to make connections between the Silmarils and the Ring, right? But there's a big difference between the Silmaril and the Ring. The Silmaril isn't inherently evil? Yes, right? The, the Ring is inherently evil. Sauron's malice has been poured into the Ring. The Silmarils are simply, they're beautiful, right? Tolkien is saying something about beauty here, right? Because that is not... It's not wrong to desire beauty. It's not wrong to love things that are beautiful and people that are beautiful, right? These things in and of themselves is not a bad thing. It's when that desire becomes so possessive. The problem with the Silmarils is not the Silmarils. It's the people, right? No, why is it that, like, Luthien keeps the Silmaril, and yet Baron and Luthien don't seem to have this problem. Why not? What's the difference? Because no Luthien's already that. so beautiful. She is a Silmaril. Like, she, yeah. she's the most beautiful and she breaks all the rules. Yeah, but I also think because Baron and Luthien, are, they both have sort of more nobler goals and desires, right? Baron is not getting the Silmaril because he desires the Silmaril, right? He's getting it because he loves Luthien. You know what I mean? Like, so, so they're able to hang on to the Silmaril and pass it on to their son because they, they, they sort of, they're sort of an example of how you handle beauty, right? Beauty in and of its, is not sort of an end in and of itself. It's something that's supposed to steer you or look towards something that's beyond, I don't know, not blabber, but, but you know what I mean? Like they don't seem to get possessed of the way Fingal does, the way everybody else does with Silmarils. Okay, uh, Jesse and then Alex and then Jenna. They seem to use the Silmaril more as like a memory of how they came together and what they suffered through to get together yeah. more than just an item to display. Like, I get that they kept it in a little box. No, she wore it. She wore it, she um, wore it. Yeah. No, But, like, the mentality, it's like, it's there. It's yeah. not on display exactly. It's a reminder for us. It's not an attraction for everyone else. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, there one, like, one question is, why don't the Sons of Feanor go after Baron and Luthien? Because no one wants right. to mess with Baron. Well, I think it's part. Of, I think maybe they don't know where they are. No, I think it, it literally no, says no one wants yeah, to mess with Baron Luthien. That's, my, that's my actual point. I was going to counter argue you. Yeah. I was going to say I think the same stuff would have happened to Baron Luthien if it hadn't been Luthien. 
like it's because Luthien breaks all the rules and because she's so powerful and beautiful that the sons of Xehanort are actually too scared to go get her. Yeah. Because Dior does the same thing as Luthien. He's does he's not like proud or anything. Right. He's just wearing it. Yeah. But because he's not Luthien, he's not the most powerful, the most beautiful. The sons of Feanor aren't scared to go attack him. Yeah. So I don't think it's necessarily Baron and Luthien being so like so noble and righteous themselves. I think it's just because the sons of Feanor and the, everyone in Middle Earth is or, or in Beleriand is so scared and like no they can't take them you know right but i mean why isn't that baron and luthien don't get possessive about the silver that's that's what i you know what i mean that's what i was getting at right i think that's you're right enough. i think i think yeah caligorm and Kirvin are not going to mess with baron and luthien right yeah. or with luthien probably right that's but it's interesting that neither baron nor luthien seem to have the same they don't seem to look at the Silmaril the way everyone else looks at the Silmaril. Oh, Baron did when he was taking the Silmarils for Well, yeah, time. he did for a moment, yeah. So maybe, yeah. And it screwed him, so yeah. now we know. Yeah, yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah, correct. But I think it's a comment on, you know, Tolkien's continual comment on the, the perilous realm and the peril of beauty. Like, mm-hmm. with a Silmaril and Luthien. Luthien is already, as Alex was saying, a Silmaril. Like, she is beautiful in that way, plus having an actual Silmaril. It is, it's like that... That beauty that you can't look on, yeah. because it's it's just it's too dangerous. Yeah. And it's that yeah that comment on like you almost can't covet that beauty because you can't handle it, and everybody knows that they can't. Yeah. Okay. Tamara. I'm just kind of wondering that if Thingol had when we first read about Thingol and Melian, that they were really pure. If he had met a Samuel then, he wouldn't have done what he does now. But now he's fallen. He would fall and die. Right. And so then the word is almost like it's the the dwells are the or elves are already diminishing and so that's why it has an effect mm-hmm. on him. Okay. Daniel? I'm noticing something about the Silmarils that I've only seen one other place in here, and it's that he only describes the Silmarils as like lust. He uses the, the exact mm-hmm. word for the dwarves. Yeah. And he hasn't used it since like Oli. Uh, and I think it's the same sort of thing that right. they, they want it, they don't need it, they just want it and want it more. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, Tara? interesting thing I just noted um, from Tamara's comment about Thingol is how he wouldn't have wanted it earlier when he and Melian were close and I don't think he would have wanted it either when he still had Luthien. He's lost Luthien at this point. It's almost like he's trying to replace something irreplaceable and I think we see the same thing with Feanor. He lost his father. The Silmarils are his way of trying to replace what he's lost with a material object. They're trying to use it to fill a void, like mm-hmm. yeah. fill in something that can't be filled in with stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, so then you have this um, this great line that I'll read what that Thingol says to the dwarves, um, which is very similar to how he speaks to Baron. Um, but Thingol perceived their hearts and saw well that desiring the silver they sought but a pretext and a fair cloak for their true intent. And in his wrath and pride, he gave no heed to his peril, but spoke to them in scorn, saying, How do ye of uncouth race dare to demand aught of me, Eluthingo, lord of Beleriand, whose life began by the waters of Cuvienan, years uncounted ere the fathers of stunted people awoke? And standing tall and proud among them, he bade them with shameful words to be gone, unrequited out of Dorian. I mean, this, I mean he, he's, his pride has so blinded him that he's completely unaware of his own danger, right? Feanor's like this too when he goes after, right, after Morgoth, right? He's completely unaware of his own danger 
right? And of course he gets smoked by Balrogs, right? And and here, you know, Dingle again, completely oblivious to his own peril, right, is, is taken out by these dwarves, right? Um, I think for me that's like what makes his like death so satisfying is because like when he was talking to Baron earlier, like that's what you wanted to do. You're just like, oh my god, like you're so like stuck up and like someone just needs to put you in your place and yeah. the dwarves do but like they actually just like yeah. completely overreact and just kill him on the spot for being so prideful they overreact yeah <laughs> um okay let's uh let's do melian because um, we're coming to we come to the end of her story too what do you make of melian and, uh, okay uh matthew and then alex i yeah just how you guys were saying asking about uh, how the silmarill doesn't hurt Luthien, but also I, I'm just wondering about this line where it says, for while Luthien wore the necklace of the dwarves, no elf would dare assail her, but now hearing of the renewal of Doriath and of Dior's pride, the seven gathered again from wandering. So I'm just wondering, do they, is it because they respect Luthien or because they, they fear her after what she did to Morthoth? You just don't mess with Luthien. Yeah, my sense is that you... Um, yeah, probably a bit of both, but but yeah, basically Luthien is sort of untouchable, I think. Yeah. Well when you die and come back, like Well yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, uh Melian. Yes, Alex. Okay, I'm just gonna say it again. I am not a fan of what Melian does in this chapter at all. I think I've never really been a fan of Melian, sorry. But, um, <laughs> um, like, I just... I'll just sit and glare. Yeah. <laughs> but just, like, I mean, I get that, like, she was very in love with Thingol, and, like, she did come into the story when Thingol saw her, and, like, all that stuff. But, like, again, it's one of those things where it's, like, Melian is a Meyer. She's so powerful. She has all of this, like, like potential. And she's keeping Doriath, like, safe with the girl. And then when Thingol dies, she's just like, no, I'm done here. Like, that was that was the whole point of my story. I'm just going to leave you, much like the Valor just left you, to, like, defend yourselves, and I'm not going to stay here with my great Maiar power. I mean, yeah, I know. There's probably other stuff, but uh, gut instinct, I'm just like, no, Melian, why did you do that? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not a fan. Not a good choice. Uh, Tamara. Can I say that it's not just... Everybody has been ignoring her and ignoring her, and she's probably fed up and said, fine, if you're not going to listen to me, I'll just leave you, so you can see what a huge mistake you're making. And that was so she leaves. That's it. That is true. <laughs> Still don't like her. Yeah, Jessie. Um, she's also kind of like Morgoth, and that she found herself in chains of flesh. And I think, I don't know if that leached some of her power or any of it, but... She spent a long time in the form of an elf. Yeah. And uh, it seems like that would have some kind of effect. Okay. Uh, ben? Well, just like to that, it seems like to me that when she like became such, yeah, she was bound to the earth, but then she also gained power over it. So it's... Yeah, she, where, where are you reading that? That is in, like, after... In the Ruin of Dorth, right after Thingol dies. Right. That's yeah. That's the point. That's what I wanted to get at. Um, oh yeah. Upon Dorth, had Melian of Set Long. So, yeah. Um, yes. Right. 
For Melian was of the divine race of the Valar, and she was a Maya of great power and wisdom. But for love of Elway, Singolo, she took upon herself the form of the elder children of the Lugatar. And in that union, she became bound by the chain and trammels of the flesh of Arda. In that form, she bore to him Luthien Tenubio, and in that form, she gained a power over the substance of Arda, and by the girdle of Melian was Dorian defended through long ages from the evils without. It's possible that with the death of Thingol, she loses the power that she gained. And so she cannot maintain the girdle of Melian anymore. Alex is shaking her head. No, I don't agree with that at no all. Way. Because she says, in that form she bore him, in that form, it's because she took the form of an elf and was corporeal in the earth that she had that power. And when she, and I think that's just leading up to when she releases herself from that form and becomes like a spirit of a Maya again, mm -hmm. that's when the girdle falls because she's no longer in her, her corporeal form, which was what was holding the power. But she did that out of love for Thingol, and then... I know, but that's not a good reason to just abandon everyone else in her. No one else Alex, was listening to her anyways. From what I'm reading, like, just in that following paragraph, it sounds like, it says a change came upon Melian, and her power was withdrawn, but it sounds like she has not passed from, like, the body yet, because she still talks to Mabalong right. about the Silmarillion to take it to Baron and Luthien. So it, I do kind of, I'm agreeing a little more with Rick, like, it's be her, I'm right in the middle. <laughs> it's like, she changes, but I don't think she, like, tries to fight the change to save yeah. the thing, because she's like, well, I've loved and lost. I'm done now. And it's interesting that it's, it's passive, right? It's not, thus it came to pass that she withdrew her power in that time from the force of but that her power was withdrawn in that time from the force of Neldreth and Regian and Esgalduin, and the enchanted river spoke with a different voice, and Doriath lay open to its enemies, right? So, to me, it, yeah, okay, I don't need to repeat what, but, but, yeah, so, anyway. At, at the very least, it's ambiguous. Yeah, uh, Jesse? I can't remember if she, like, actively laid down the girdle in the first place, or if it just showed up when she assumed the form of an elf and married seems like it was there because she took the form of an elf, because she loved Thingol so much. And when he died, it just broke her heart. And that stopped. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and there, there may also be a, a bigger parallel here, although this may be, be reading too much into it, of the Valar and Arda. Right? That's what I was thinking. Right. So when the Valar sort of enter into Arda, they become bound to Arda and right in, in such a way, right? And then until Arda dies, and then they are they can go, right? So Thingol then is is to Arda as or Thingol is to Melian as Arda is to the Valar, right? And with the death of Thingol, Melian is now also sort of released from that the chain, so to speak, right? But in that release, she loses whatever power she had gained in in that whatever, you know what I mean? And so it seems that with the death of Thingol, her, you know, the girdle no longer holds, right? And so, um, so I don't know, I don't see it as, I don't see it as sort of her like, okay, I'm out of here, I'm abandoning, you know, my people, and it's, you know, I see it more as sort of a natural result of the, the death of Thingol and whatever it was that she had. So, yeah, Daniel? This feels more to me like a Sauron in his ring kind of thing, where with Thingol dead, her yeah, 
she did love Bengal through everything. Oh yeah, for like, sure. That's... I went back and looked yeah. and said she lent him great powers. So. Yeah, right. Well, that's the thing, right? She also lends him power, which also suggests suggests the fact that he's alone when when the door. Right? It's as if he is separating himself from her. Sort of turns off a kind of switch in him too, right? So that so that his own inner desires sort of become elevated. And although, except that he's just as he's just as, as annoying or barren as so maybe that's not right. Um, okay, we got to get going here because we got to get to Ghana. But I do want to pause very briefly and talk about the sons of Fan over here. Um, so. Uh, because don't they, don't they, do they do something in here too? They start the second slaying of Elphine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Kinsley for two. A premeditated slaying. Kinsley for two. Yeah, in the book of Lost Tales, it's much more premeditated than it is, than it is here. Um, but it's interesting that, yeah, this is sort of the worst that they do, right? Except for Kinsley uh, 3. No, Kinsley 3 is pretty bad too. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, yeah, the, I guess these, these particular sons. Anyway. Right? But but the thing is, it's not right. But of course, it's not just the kinsling. It's not just killing Elf and Elf. They take these Dior's kids and basically abandon them in the woods. Right? That has nothing to do with the Elf. Right? There's no reason to do that. Right? So that that's what I mean by this is like Kelligorm, especially. The next one, they kidnap the other two. Yeah, but at least they're. I mean, you know, Maglor actually takes care of them. Right? Like, there's a sense where where they actually, you know, might be Stockholm syndrome. Because so, <laughs> you know, they put about Elrond in the Lord of the Rings, and then it's like, dude, you were raised by like Maglor. Like, come on. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. That makes perfect yeah. sense if they abandoned Dior's kids in the wild because Dior himself managed to kill three of the sons. And I don't think those two would grow up and just have to be like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's done. That's done. It's done. Right. But I mean, the, but I mean the, the children have, the children are in no way blocking them from achieving the symbols. Right. Right. So there's no reason for them to even mess with the kids, but the fact right. that they deliberately yeah, I mean this is well, it's a preemptive you know, measure against vengeance. Yeah, I mean yeah, so it's 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 or um, they're just dicks. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Or both. Uh, Which I mean, they learn because Mindros is the, you know forever the one that does bad things and repents and is like I'm you know from the boats to this that. At least he learns something when it comes to Elrond and Elros, whereas, yeah. you know, he repents of it and then he tries to find the kids, and then of course they're not going to be there anymore because they're probably very young and a wolf lady or something. But yeah, yeah, right. It's just. Yeah, Matthew? I thought originally when uh, Feanor took the ships and left Fingolfin and his people, some of Fingolfin's people behind at Mydros was unaware until they reached the other side and then he turned around and was like, how could we lose Fingon? What did you do? So I, I think he repented, but he also didn't mean to do that in that specific case. And he turns more evil as his oath needs to be fulfilled further. Right. And I mean, we're going to see when we get to the, the, the War of Wrath and Arendelle that, that Maedros and Magmar of the Sons of Fingon are the most... Um, I mean, they're, they're doing their best to get out, in a sense, to get out of it, but they're not able to, right? But they, they're at least aware of the fact that this is insanity, right? Yeah. That we're bound to this thing. You know, like Caligorm and Curfin, you have no indication at all that they regret any of this, right? So. Yeah, you get a sense at the end of War of Wrath that, I mean, Mithros 
and Megalore do end up like being pretty irredeemable. Yeah. But you get a sense that they're already like, you know, like we. This is two kin slayings in. Like, like, yeah. there's no way. Like, we can go back to Valinor, sure, right. but like, like, it's gonna be the same thing. We're either gonna go back to Valinor and get doomed to the halls of Mandos, yeah. or we're gonna stay here and get doomed to the halls of Mandos. Like, yeah. it's just there's no good answer. Yeah. Um, okay, let's do a tour in the Fall of Gondolin. Oh my goodness. I like tours. Yes. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, this is a very short chapter. And it feels very condensed. Did you get that sense at all? Yes. Perhaps more than any other other chapter. Um, so this is assisted in part by the fact that this is again one of the first of the three, one of the three main tales that Tolkien's first started writing, and you know when he was in the hospital with trench syndrome and trench war sickness, whatever. And thankfully, he kept having relapses; otherwise, he would have been sent back to the front. Um, but there are other versions, and particularly in the, the Lost Tales, the version is a lot longer. We get a lot more about Tour's childhood, his escape from slavery, his entry into Gondolin, and in the Lost Tales, the Battle of Gondolin is the longest sort of description of a battle in all of Tolkien's books. Oh I mean, so Balrogs are falling left and right. Even more than like Hell to the Yes. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is so good. Um, but of course, here is here. It's uh, uh, it's obviously short. So, yeah. Okay. So just some quick background. So you remember that Turgon and Finrod both had this dream by Umul that they were to build these these sanctuaries, right? Um, Finrod builds his Anarvathrond. Um, uh, Turgon goes to Nevrist, right, and he builds that city of uh, Vinyamar, which is where Tour ends up before he heads off to, to Gondolin. Um, there are more Grey Elves living there than any other in Nevrist than any other land in Beleriand, and there's also nowhere else in Beleriand where you had the Sindar and the Noldor live together in harmony than in Nevrist under Turgon. Um, so yeah, Finrod, so Ulmo comes, Finrod builds Narvathron, Turgon builds Gondolin in secret, all the people from Nevra slowly and secretly, I don't know how they do this, sneak across the continent to Gondolin, and, and they leave the city of uh, Vinyamar abandoned, but if you remember that Ulmo again spoke to Turgon over the messenger that will come to him in Gondolin, and so he's supposed to leave a suit of armor in Vinyamar for whoever comes uh, to do that. Um, so he does that, uh, so that uh, he'll be Remember also that Turgon is probably the most, well, Finrod and Turgon are the most westward-facing of the Noldor, right? Um, Finrod brings more stuff from Valinor than anyone else uh, as, as a way of remembering it. And, of course, Turgon builds uh, Gondolin in a replica of Tyrion. He even puts a replica of the two trees in there, right, as a way of looking westward. So of all the Noldor, Finrod and Turgon are the most sort of westward-looking. Um, and Turgon is the only one who looks to the west for help, right? So we start sending ships, right? Uh, and the last ship he sends is captained by Vor Boronwe, who Tour eventually meets him, right? So there's all that kind of background. Um, okay, we also here uh, go right back to the end of the Battle of the Number of Tears. Um, what do you notice differences between Tour and Turin? They're cousins, but so they're, they're in the same family. But what? how are things different? How are they the same? What are some parallels? Yeah, Tamara. Turin has bad luck and Tour has really good luck. Okay, yeah. Tour doesn't have nearly the the sort of struggles that Tour has, Alex. Yeah, Tour has a lot of 
at least in their childhood, they both end up, like, they seem to both end up alone a lot, but Turin does that despite having a lot of people who want to come and help him, and Tour just doesn't have anyone. He's just wandering. Well, Tour, it's interesting. I mean, Tour actually is very much alone. Like, yeah. Turin always seems to have some companions around him. But he keeps on, like, right? messing but up. He's, yeah, he messes right? it up, but he still constantly has... But Tour is, I mean, he's like, like, he's a total outlaw. Like, he's just, like, he lives in every, he lives in this abandoned city all by himself. Who knows how long he's there, right? Obviously too long, because he has the swans coming. He's a, a sign of, ooh, I've stayed here too long. I should get going. So, okay, so that, so, yeah. Yeah, Corinne? Well, in, Tour has sort of the opposite problem that Turin has, where, like, Turin, like, everybody, he just always becomes... The leader, everybody listens to his counsel all the time, regardless of if it is good advice. Whereas Tour is the one bringing the good advice. It's the wise man, but everyone listens to Maiglin. He like right. Tour. Tour just can't catch a break. No one gives him the time of day in council okay. because Maiglin's going along with the isolationist perspective yep. that works for Turin, and he refuses to listen to good counsel. Okay, good. Um, you also have some pretty. Okay, so so there are differences as well. Um, there, but also another, some other similarities are. Oh yeah, Ben. Well, they're both fostered by elves after yes. their parents die, except. and by gray elves, right? But there's a difference, right? Turin is taken by Thingol and raised as a prince, whereas Tour is sort of taken by kind of a random, and ends up being a thrall, right? So so there's so you know so that's a total difference, right? Um, you also have, um, yeah, okay. Uh, their, their mothers, right? Rian, of course, goes and, and kills herself, and Morwen, as we saw, you know, keeps sort of at least loves them and keeps trying to connect with them. Um, both are orphans or, or near orphans. They, their fathers are, are gone. Yeah. So, and of course, yeah. I mean, I mean, Tour in, in, in comparison. Uh, Turin is is. I mean, he's got a great life, and yet it just all goes awry. Whereas Tour in his childhood clearly struggles; he's a thrall, right? And yet he ends up sort of turning out all right. Um, yeah, Tamara. It's almost like Tolkien is making a statement that it doesn't matter what your circumstances are; things can happen. Yeah. Like it's not just because you're. Right. So, what do you make of Tuor's isolation? We have now had quite a few characters in the Silmarillion who go off on their own. Yeah, Alex? Well, I was going to say, it links him with Ulmo, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what's the difference between Ulmo going alone and, and Morgoth going alone, right? Or Fanor going alone, or... All these people that Aule kind of going off of, right? So there's something, there's a difference between Ulmo and Tuor, right? Them going alone doesn't seem to twist them. What, what do you what do you think is the difference? What might be the difference? Yeah, Alex. I mean, and also point out that generally, like Ulmo, Aule, Morgoth, Feanor, they all went to they all went alone. Like they were yeah. like, no, there are people here. We're gonna go alone. Tuor didn't really have a choice. I mean, he did stay by himself for a while, too long, yeah. that some would say. But like, it's not like he like left a bunch of people and his friends to go off alone. He right, just yeah. that just happened to be his life. Yeah. It's the same with um, someone like Baron, who's kind of gets like an enforced period of solitude 
rather than a voluntary right. separation from people. But there is something also in Tour that you don't see in people like Turin and Morgoth and, and others. If I mean, if pride is the big sin in Tolkien, humility is the big virtue, right? And and you, you Tour, you get a sense of Tour as understanding that he also has a kind of destiny. In fact, you could argue that Tour's destiny is much more set than even Turin, right? I mean, you got the prophecy from Luor, remember that, right? To Turgon, right before he leaves, right? Do you remember? Do you remember? The, from the two of us, something great. Right. Yeah, Star Yeah, and then you have Umo, right? Basically saying to, right? To, you know, like Tour's destiny is kind of so set. In fact, it's so set that Tour isn't even really the main character of the story the way Tour is, right? Tour is kind of like like the instrument that allows sort of the prophecy to go, right? Um, which maybe explains a bit why Tour, in a sense, is not nearly as kind of interesting as Tour either, right? And to me, anyway, right? He's kind of, I mean, he's not uninteresting, but he's just not, you're, you're not following Tour around the way you follow, or Tour the way you follow Tour around, right? It's like, he's just kind of, but, but he also has, this, I think, this sense of, of sort of submitting to this, right? Which, I, which you don't have with people like Morgoth refuses to submit Fane or doesn't. None of these people want to submit. They want to do their own thing. They want to dominate. They want to. Turin sort of dominates by accident, right? Just because it's in him. But Tour just seems much more willing to, to go along with the quote unquote plan, I guess. Um, I mean, it's interesting too. Like, if, if you could almost argue that this is Ulmo's story more than it is Tour's story. And the way Umo almost acts so directly, right? Puts the desire in Tour's heart, right? I mean, we haven't seen a Vala play this kind of role in the story since, except for Morgoth, since I don't know when, right? Um, I don't think ever with men either. Right, and this is the first time with men. I mean, this is not something. I mean, Umo actually appears to him in majesty coming out of the sea. You know, like it's such a great scene. Yeah, Ben? To me, it just seems like Tour is that guy that things keep happening to, and he's like, okay, cool, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that, and he's just taking life as it comes. Yeah. Yeah, like, like I mean, it's not like he doesn't have choices, right? Like, like he, he sees the sign of the swans, right, and says, okay, I've been here too long, I have to get going, right? There are There is a sense where it's not determinism, right? But no other no other human character, for sure, you have a Vala so... I mean, even, even getting them into Gondolin is described as the power of Ulmo gets it, right? Like, Ulmo is so much behind this now, right? Even, even before he's even born, right? Ulmo's like, and these are the specifications of the armor you need to make so that it fits this. Like, Ulmo knows what, you know, exactly what size Tour is going to be before he's even born so that the armor will fit, right? Like, it's amazing, actually, that Ulmo is suddenly... And Ulmo, of course, is so independent. Like, you think... Their Valar know that Umo's doing this? Like, does he tell them that he's setting all this up, right? I mean, I kind of feel like not. <laughs> I get to say, yeah, like, Umo doesn't even live in Valinor. Like, they probably, they may not even know what the heck Umo's doing, right? I think Manway might have gotten some hint, but... Yeah, man, they're all the eagles, although eagles can't see underwater, so... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe they do because they fish. They have to be able to see the sea fish somehow. They or just get down there and then drown somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Someone was like, I don't know, but they were just in oh, the water. Horrible accident, by the way. Yeah, I don't know why your eagles always like drown when they're trying to spy on me. Like. 
accent, they slip yeah. and fell down some stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and you have, you have, but even Ulmo with Turin, like we talked about, you know, the message to the Lord of Lord of Nargothrond, which could be, but then even Turin's cleansing at the pools of Ivrin, right, after Beleg's slaying, I mean, that sounds like Ulmo too, maybe, right? That's um, where he and Turin meet. That's where they, where they yeah, where they, where they pass each other, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, right. So, you know, so Ulmo seems to be... Uh, I feel like this is, like, the one part of the song that didn't really talk about Ulmo might have been listening to and been like, hey, no one else is going to care about this because it's men, so I've got to keep... Yeah. Like, I've got to keep that part. Yeah, and some people have said, oh, this is, like, when, like, it's as if this doesn't make, this doesn't fit with anything else about the Valor that, to that Tolkien has written, but this ha in every version of the story, Ulmo plays this role. It's not like Tolkien... Like, oh, well, it was later in his life and he came back and wrote it. You know, like, this seems to be Tolkien had wanted this from the beginning, right? That in this moment, Ulmo is going to step in. You know, it's very, very, very interesting. Okay, Gondolin. Maybe we can get through this. They didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Something. Yeah. That's horrible. So, um, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, that uh, the original warning or the original message that uh, Ulmo gives the Turkon is reinvented here about don't love the work of your hands too much, right? So that sets the context. Um, so, yeah, okay. So, whoever wants to weigh in here, go for it. Alex, you can. Oh, mine's a little start. bit later, actually. It's about Mygelin. Okay, so we're going to get to Mygelin. Okay, so. Okay, so Tour, so Tour shows up, he's wearing the armor, right? There is no question in Turgon's mind, I don't think, that this is the guy, right? I just don't think that Turgon is questioning that, right? Turgon seems to have another problem, right? So now we get to this, this policy, right? Um, Turgon has not been an isolationist from the beginning, right? They come out for the Battle of, of Sudden Flame, or right? They, they, you know... Um, that, you know, um, Turgon lets Hurin come in and lets them leave, you know what I mean? Like, um, um, there's, so there's these moments, um, and again, where Turin changes, opens his heart to Hurin again, like, it's too late, Hurin's gone, but, you know, that moment. but now, right, you have that sense where it is completely closed, right? So, uh, Um, there's there, there's there's one where where it says not only Turgon but also um, the people. Oh yeah, here it is. But Turgon was become proud, and Gondolin as beautiful as a memory of Elven Tyrion, and he trusted still in its secret impregnable and impregnable strength. Even though even a Vala should gainsay it. There's only one Vala. That's it. that's his only one, right? Um, and after the the near knife uh, Arnadiad, the people of that city desire never, the people of that city desire never again to mingle in the woes of elves and men without, nor to return through dread and danger into the west. Shut behind their pathless and enchanted hills, they suffered none to enter, though he fled from Morgoth, he pursued, and tidings of the lands beyond came to them faint and far, and they heeded them little. The entire city is now completely closed. Right? And all because they think that Gondolin is going to be able to survive. I mean, even if Hurin hadn't let Morgoth know, I mean, it's only a matter of time. It's like process of elimination. It's only a matter of time before Morgoth is going to figure it out. It's like, 
how come my orcs keep getting killed there? You know what I mean? Like, he, eventually he's going to figure it out, right? So, so clearly, Turgon has become right something else. In fact, at least with yeah, Jesse. Well, it could just be similar to like uh, France and England after World War One, where it's like we're not we're not marching out to fight again. Last time was enough. Yeah. Because he went out with ten thousand, and I don't know how many came back, but it was a lot less than that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's for sure. Yeah. I feel like Ulmo has become the new Melian where nobody listens to him except for, you know, some tour. So Tour can be yeah. our Galadriel in this situation. Yeah. The only yeah. one who listens. I mean, what's interesting too is like at least with someone like Thingol, you kind of you kind of see the progression away. But with Turgon, you don't, of course, because Turgon has been hidden this whole, like we don't know. But Turgon, it's so sudden, right? It's almost like, it's almost in a sense the worst sort of prideful move that we've had in the Silmarillion because it happens so... It's like a light switch. All of a sudden, it's like, that's it. You know, this place is safe. Um, and it's funny. It's like... it's like he, The whole city was built on the instruction of Ulmo. Right? And now Ulmo comes and says, okay, now you gotta go. And he's like, uh, I think we'll be okay. Uh, we'll be fine. Don't worry. Ulmo. We'll be okay. You know, it's like... It's like unbelievable, right? Um... Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it was built on Tyrion, and so Tyrion had been itself had been invaded by Ungoliant, and so yeah. why would they be trusting that when their model has been? Well, that's true too, right? Yeah, actually, that's a great point, right? Yeah, why would it's Turgon Tyrion be too Ungoliant proof? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Except it's not as good because it doesn't have the actual trees, like it's a diminished version of Yeah. Um, okay, uh, I wanted to talk a bit about um, Tour and Idril, um, but we don't have to do that. Uh, except that, that it seems that Tour, Tour's Tour's bringing the message is not even his real purpose. His purpose is to marry Idril, right, so that they can have this <laughs> What's that? <laughs> well, he's the savior, Balerion. So I was just like, Jesus, Balerion. Oh, yeah. It's a red milk. <laughs> so wait, yeah, when he becomes space Jesus. <laughs> so yeah, so um, of course, so now we have the second, the second union between an elf and a, and a man, right? Uh, and and we're going to end up with three of them. Uh, what do you make though of the fact that Tour sort of gets it so easily compared to Aragorn? Much like most of Tour's life, Tour is given things, and he's like, "Okay, yeah. okay, yeah, Matthew." Yeah, I just read that similar to Tour and how Finduilas just all of a sudden fell in love with Tour. But I read specifically the lines, and and it said that she gave Tour her love first, and then Tour loved her as well. So Baron liked Luthien first, I think, but here. Which just like with the Findulas and Tour. Yeah, maybe that's a difference. I mean, I mean, this, and of course, Baron is not the same as Aragorn, right? Like Elrond, who clearly went, who clearly is, is 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 
remember Thingo probably, or at least the story of Thingo when Aragorn says, "Hey, I love your daughter." I mean, the the, the task that Aragorn is given is not the same as Thingo giving a task to Baron. Right? Obviously, Thingo wants Baron to fail. Right? Elrond doesn't want Aragorn to fail. But there seems to be something like um, that. This kind that this kind of of union is of such great whatever worth um, that it requires a kind of journey, painful journey yeah, to get right. there. Right? One does not simply walk into an elder woman. You know, it requires a kind of right. So, except of course, for some reason, for tour, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, I think it also might just be like because he's he's the like Sion of Olmo. Like his whole life is kind of just like this divine intervention all the way through. So yeah. I see it kind of as like Ulmo is just like okay, okay, now you get there, now you marry a drill, now ride yeah. this board, cool. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to her, you know. Yeah. Now we'll hop on a ship and get out of here. Yeah. yeah. We don't know what happens to you, but maybe you end up being. Uh... He obviously goes to find Ulmo and the heir of Brosper. Well, I wanted to get to that if we have time. Maybe we have, but but of course you have that very interesting line at the end, right? Where Tour. Um, in those days, Tour felt old age creep upon him, and ever longing for the deeps of the sea grew stronger in his heart. Therefore, he built a great ship, and he named it Aarame, which is seaward. And with Ildru Celebrindo, he set sail into the sunset and the west, and came no more into any tale or song. But in after days, it was sung that Tour alone of mortal men was numbered among the elder race, and was joined with an older whom he loved, and his fate is sundered from the fate. That is unique, right? That the, a man... Now, of course, the narrator doesn't say that it happened. It just says the elves thought maybe it happened. Um, it's kind of like reverse Baron and Luthien. Instead of Luthien, like, whereas Luthien becomes, like, sundered with men, Tuor is sundered with the elves. Right, but I mean, like, the, the, the Valor... I mean, it's funny. The Valor are always saying, well, we can't change the fates of men. Right? The fates of... We can't do that. Only a Lupitar can do that, right? Yeah, Matthew? That's, but in that event, wouldn't it just be, Manway would say, okay, just a second, I have to look into my innermost thought, and then a Lupitar would be the one who actually changes, and then Mandos and Manway. Because sometimes yeah. it says, right. and Manway had to speak for Mandos, because he had to. But maybe him. not Manway, maybe Ulmo. Yeah. Right? Maybe Tour is hanging out with Ulmo. Right? Because remember what he says when he first is enamored with the sea at the beginning? Um, and Tour came into Neverest, and looking upon Belager, the great sea, he was enamored of it. And the sound of it was the longing, and the sound of it and the longing for it were ever in his heart and ear, and an unquiet was on him that took him at last into the depths of the realms of the world. I don't know what that means. He built the real Atlantis. <laughs> there we go. Now we're talking. <laughs> what did the real Atlantis Okay, Alex and then Corinne. Um, well, I was just going to say, like, We've heard several stories where Luthor does favor obedience, right? Yeah. Like that's the reason for like it, in uh, the fall of men and the tale of Ad, the people of Admel and stuff is because of their disobedience and stuff like that. So like I think it would if if there was a man to be promoted to become an elf, like Tour is a great candidate because we know that Iluvatar likes people who are obedient and Tour has been nothing but obedient his entire life. Yeah, right. Yeah. That was that was my point. Oh, okay. he, so he, did, he did everything. Everyone ever asked And for the yeah. for part of what with Tourgon, what we were saying before is like, why is it so easy for Tour? I think a big part of it is 
No, like, no one let Thingol know that there was going to be a man that would be in love with his daughter, and really no one let Elrond know that either, but yeah. Tur- Turgon's always had this 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 thought in his mind, maybe not specifically, but, you know, who are saying, like, our, our houses will be united and there will, you know, something great will come out of that yeah. sort of thing. So maybe it's just, like, Turgon's like, oh, so you're what Huor was talking about. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it, it just makes more sense because in some way he's kind of been prepared yeah. Yep. Okay, we got to get on here. I mean, we can still wrap this up. We still got to talk about Mygland, but before we do that, let's talk about the Battle of Gondolin. Uh, just to settle one thing, um, in the Peoples of Middle Earth, which is one of the volumes of Middle Earth, um, Tolkien says unequivocally that the Glorfindel of Gondolin is the same Glorfindel in the Lord of the Rings. So there you go. Four dollars. I yeah. have to. Oh, bye, Tamara. Nice to see you. Yes, Tamara's been a member and on the executive for a long time. So, great. always great to but see I've you. But I've been graduated for two years, so I'm not show up. See you. Okay, see you, Tamara. Okay, we got to talk about Turgon's death. What do you make of it? In the tower? Why is he not fighting with the rest of his captains that are discussed right before that in that sentence? Because he is dead. <laughs> he thought his walls were unassailable, and now he's going to die. Okay. Of the deeds of desperate valor, they're done. I mean, this is style. Moment. Of the deeds of desperate valor, they're done by the chieftains of the noble houses and their warriors, and not least by Tour. Much is told in the fall of Gondolin. Of the battle of Exthelion, of the fountain with Gothmon, lord of Balrogs, and the very square of the king, where each slew the other. And of the defense of the tower of Turgon by the people of his household, until the tower was overthrown. And mighty was its fall in the fall of Turgon in its rule. I mean, the style just kind of ratchets up a little bit for that, right? Um. Yeah, okay. I mean, he kind of goes down with his ship a little bit, right? In a sense. Um, but I don't think it's Den- I don't think he's Denethor in that sense, right? I think it maybe has more to do with. Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was, well, Denethor... He wasn't prepared to go down with the ship. He was prepared to go down before the ships, but he wouldn't have to deal with that. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole point is, of course, none of this had to happen if he just left, right? I don't think he despairs the way... De- There's no hint of despair the way, the way Denethor has despair, right? There's no sense of, well, I'm just... It doesn't matter anyway. We're screwed. We're, we're going to die, right? He doesn't expect that that's going to happen anyway, right? Um, yeah, Jesse... Well, I mean, the tower is kind of like a central point where he can command the defense. So it would make sense for him to be there rather than on one point at the wall. Well, the tower would also be your last retreat. You know, like that right. typical fort castle that's like everybody gets into the tower, you hold that to the end, and when you can't hold that anymore, then you're done. Yeah, so rather than being so, passive in the defense, he's active at a higher command level where he's directing what's going on. And then when everything goes to shit, he just. Well, it's like there's nowhere else for him to go yeah. after yeah. that. Backed himself into a, like a literal corner on that one. I don't think we see many of the elves do that. Most of them fight. Well, most of them are also hot-headed and die. Yeah. So <laughs> it ends terribly for those elves. Yeah, sure. fair enough. Like that guy that led the charge uh, with the tears and just yeah, I don't care. 
I mean, I think I think Eventually. you're all right in the sense. Like, I think the tower would be the last line of defense. I think also the tower is a good place to kind of overlook everything and make your plans. Um, and yeah, I think in the end, it's, it's his pride also, right? That 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 keeps him there. Again, none of it was necessary, uh, but he sticks because he's convinced that that it's going to survive, right? I mean, in that in that sense, uh, it's almost opposite of Denethor, who's who's convinced that. There's this interesting thing with the mist that hides the, the, the people who are escaping. Right? Um, the mourns, it says mournful mist. Yeah, the mournful mist, where is that? At the bottom. Just at the very Oh yeah, but so he saw, he fought, oh yeah, he, he, oh yeah, we gotta get to Maiglin. Um, Oh yeah, the fume of a burning, the steam of the fair fountains have gone, withering the flame fell, that a mournful mist and thus escape. Right. So of course, I mean I think we're supposed to hear Umo here again with mists, right? And Gondolin was known for its mist, the rock of many fountains, I think it was called in the beginning. Right. And remember in the Ainalindalay when Morgoth, when Melkor creates fire, right? And 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 heat and all this stuff. And then Umo says to Manway, yeah, but look at what he's done, right? It's created rain and mist, right? So clearly, there's a there's a nice parallel there, which is which is really cool. Okay, Alex, Maiglin. Oh yeah, my point about Maiglin was I thought it was interesting because a lot of the events in the Silmarillion, you can usually pinpoint a point where it was kind of that person's fault. Like with like I mean with Turin, most of the stuff he did, like Nargothrond fell pretty much because Turin built that bridge. Like there's usually one person, but I think it's very interesting that there is like definitely two people. Like if Hurin had got into Gondolin. Maiglin could have still betrayed them. Yeah. If Horin, if T Maiglin hadn't been corrupted, Horin could have still betrayed them. So I think it's very interesting that there's definitely who, or not betrayed them, but like revealed the location. Because yeah, I think it's interesting that Horin had already revealed the location, but Maiglin also gave it up too. And that it's kind of two, two people could have caused that downfall. Yeah. Now granted, I mean, Maiglin, get, his actions get judged, right? As uh The worst, is it the worst that's ever, that's ever been done? The worst betrayal of all the betrayals or something? Well, he did it on purpose. Yeah, he did do it on purpose as opposed to Hurin, but there's yeah. definitely... Well, he was, he was tortured. Yeah. No, right? he was threatened he was with torture. Oh, yeah, he was threatened with torture, right? Yeah. And he purchased his life and freedom by revealing to Morgoth the very place of Gondolin and the ways whereby it might be found in a sail. Uh, all two are... All yeah, most two infamous novel history. That's it. All right. right. yeah. was just like given the general geographic area. Yeah. Um, his death is interesting in that it seems kind of unnecessarily descriptive. Well, it's just like his dad, isn't it? Throw well, yeah, his dad, yeah. So, so there's a parallel, though, right? So, the curse of Ale is fulfilled. He meets the same fate of his dad. Um, when Ale dies, he is executed after his trial, right? Because he kills his wife, but he's trying to kill Maiglin, but accidentally kills wife. Uh, Maiglin has committed one of the most notorious acts of evil in the entire First Age, the most infamous of all the betrayals. He never gets a trial, right? Um, but justice is done. His death is described as a punishment. Um, but it, it's, this, it's this language of, of um, you know, Tour fought with Maiglin on the walls and cast him far out and his body 
As it fell, smote the rocky slopes of Amanguara thrice ere it pitched into the flames below. Like, why the little detail about bouncing three times? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I can imagine that Alice probably loved telling the story, for one thing, right? But, you know, it just seems so, you know, you don't get that kind of description often, in, in, and yet here it's sort of this, he wants to make sure, you know, I mean, it's just so... Probably because it is the most infamous. Yeah, I guess. Something like that. Yeah. It deserves a little yeah. something extra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe that's all it is. Yeah. Because uh, he turned, he became evil willingly. Because mm-hmm. I think that's what the sort of retribution is like. Yeah. If, if it was like, say, a twisted, like a man he had captured and twisted, or someone he had brainwashed. Yeah. Then it would have just been, oh, and Tour fought with him and slew him. But mm-hmm. because Madeline willingly went and said, hey, I'll show you where it is, just gotta give me this guy's wife and the uh, government of the city, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll help you. Yeah. That's true, harsh. even Feanor was twisted by Morgoth. Right. But, like, Maidlin is just. He just yeah. went and did it. Yeah. Maidlin's a full traitor. Yeah, full, yeah the, fir- the first one who was really deliberately. So maybe that's why he gets the three guns. Why he gets the three guns. He's so of a worm tongue. Yeah. 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 And Wormtongue gets a strangely um, descriptive end as well, compared to most. Uh, he gets shot when right. in, in the like Shire. Yeah. Right, yeah. he stabs, shot, the Starman runs, and then the, the, the hobbits fill him arrows. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, um, yeah, so, so uh, you know, in the span of, of three chapters, um, Basically, if you remember the realms of Beleriand, that's all gone except for that one little place on the coast. That's the last that's left. So, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty dire now for the elves of Beleriand. We're gonna have to go get the Valar. Only they showed up earlier. <laughs> right. Tell the last time. A Glorfindel. Gets a tomb. Yeah. Oh yeah. Did the eagles make his tomb, or the eagles yeah. fly him away and then other people make his tomb? Oh, like they, they grab his dead body and then. That sounds like the eagles burial. Do they? They do. Yeah. Then Thorinder bore up Glorfindel's body out of the abyss, and they buried him in a mound of stone beside the I imagine. And the green turf came down, yellow flowers, wounds upon him, and made the grass of stone until the world was changed. Like, <laughs> Eagles can dig. But yeah, I mean, this this battle between Glorfindel and the, and the Balrog is, is great, right? I mean, again, it's only two paragraphs, but. Um, okay, my question is yeah. does, did Glorfindel already show up in this one, really? Does, like, does he do anything else, or is this like literally his only uh, up in Lord of the Rings. Well, I know, but like, he's like mentioned here, and like everyone was like, "Oh, Glorfindel, like so awesome." And then I'm like, "But uh, this is the only time he's mentioned for like a paragraph." Like, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Okay, okay, okay. Just, just making sure. Yeah. Just making sure. Uh, he's mentioned once. He's in the Lost Tales, isn't he? Oh yeah, the Lost. Well, the Lost Tales. I think this is. It's much longer than this. Maybe the duel, but. Um, but yeah, many are the songs that have been sung of the duel of Glorfindel with the Bower. I mean, I don't know why Athelion doesn't get a song for his duel with Gothmog, Lord of the Bower. 
Douglas, right? <laughs> uh, but but Glorfindel, for some reason... Because he comes back. Yeah. yeah. Well, but he's not, he wouldn't have been back yet at this point, right? So Glorfindel's yeah. name is mentioned a lot of that. Okay. Yeah, uh, Matthew. Yeah, I just think one of the reasons Glorfindel is so important is because it says in the sentence, they were, uh, it said, walled by a precipice, and on the left, a dreadful fall left into emptiness, and for Tolkien, I feel like when he invokes emptiness, that's kind of what he invoked with um, Theonor and the curse on Hurricane, that they would be consumed by emptiness from within, so they couldn't escape even, no matter where they went, so, like, you say sometimes, if I'm correct, Rick, that you think Tolkien thinks the hero of sacrifices don't end well, like when Fingolfin goes to challenge Morgoth, but here, I think it's also a true sacrifice, because when Glorfindel falls into the abyss, he is, Tolkien already wrote the abyss as emptiness, so it's kind of like he, it is a true sacrifice, and that he's going to the emptiness, which is a really negative death to save his people. So it's also right. important. I, I think, yeah. Tell me I, did that. I think, yeah, whatever emptiness might mean, and, and it could be that, I do think that what's significant about this is Glorfindel dies protecting Arendelle and the Druids, right? So they can get out. Yeah, whereas Athelion, I mean, he's just in the middle of this battle for Gondolin, but there's nothing, not as much at stake here, so maybe that's why Glorfindel gets the, the songs. Yeah, Jess? I was going to say... Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that Glorfindel's uh, duel with the Balrog definitely draws a lot of parallels as Gandalf's duel with the Balrog. Yes, right. Yeah, in fact, that's probably what Tolkien is, is pulling from, right? Um, and perhaps why Glorfindel comes back, right? In fact, that's it. Like in, in, in here, basically, you know, Tolkien says that it was the. It was this act of self-sacrifice that sort of erases uh, Glorfindel's rebellion against the Valar, right, in some sense, so that he can, you know, he still has to do, put in a little bit of time in Isaac but when, he, when he's released, because the elves are released and then they can stay in Valinor, right? But Glorfindel not only, not only gets released to Valinor, but then he, he also gets his body back and is sent back to the earth, right? And then there's some speculation. You know, he says, he actually is really good, actually. He's about five years old. It's amazing, right? Tolkien says, yeah. So when he came back out of the Hall of Mandos and into Valinor, where he spent, you know, the remainder of the first age and a good most of the second age, you know, and he met Olorin and started hanging around with Olorin, which is Gandalf, right, there. And, and then, of course, um, at the end of the second age, he thinks before the fall of Numenor, um, Glorfindel gets sent back to the earth. So then he would have fought against Sauron. But he's not mentioned. So anyway, that's pretty cool. So. All right, great. Well, it's uh, four minutes away from two o'clock, so we did manage to accomplish our goal. So next week we're going to do um, Arendil and the War of Wrath and the Akalabeth, and we'll hopefully get through it all. We're going to have to skip of the Rings of Power.